0: The End Time, and that's again included in Handel's Messiah, Thou Shalt Break Them, is the title of that one, showing that Christ will come and crush the nations like a potter's vessel. And that is a part, certainly, of the Day of Trumpets, because there is a great deal of warning associated with the Feast of Trumpets, warning to the world that they were about to die. Because they have no relationship with God. Of course, they will be resurrected later and have a chance at salvation, so God is not being unfair. But it's a warning to us very much as well, because we are the ones who stand to benefit when that trumpet shall sound and the resurrection occurs. Because only those first fruits, the 144,000, will be, in my understanding, in that first resurrection. So that should certainly get our attention, and as Nelson was mentioning this morning, that in a sense is our day. So is Pentecost, the Feast of the first fruits, as well as Trumpets, which pictures the resurrection of the dead. He talked this morning a bit about our goal and purpose in life and our understanding of what our future is to be, and I want to pick that particular part out and emphasize it. This afternoon, there are some very, very inspiring scriptures that we can look at, but I want to begin in Revelation 10, verse 7. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, now, we have understood the trumpets, the seventh trump, to picture several things, the beginning of the seven last plagues, for instance. But those come afterward. This says, when the seventh... Angel begins to sound. It is an elongated message, in other words. It is something that entails a great deal more than that which is just at the beginning. But at the beginning of his sounding, the mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared to his servants, the prophets. There is something about that seventh trump that when it occurs, a mystery is going to be removed, a mystery that we can in part comprehend now but cannot fully comprehend. That is what I want to focus on today, to perhaps give us a little better view of what lies ahead, a little better understanding perhaps what we've had of what that mystery truly is. Because that's when it will be finished. When you read a book, a novel, a mystery, if it's well written, you sort of are on pins and needles until you get to the final smash climax and find out who done it and what it was that they did. Without an ending, the story really means nothing, does it? Now this story of human life really means nothing unless there is some mystery attached that takes us beyond what we are today. We live more or less 70 years on this earth. Some of us have our lives truncated very young, maybe a day in life, or six or eight or ten days in life, maybe 20 years, maybe 80 or 90 or even 100 years, but roughly speaking, about 70 and then it's over. If there's no meaning beyond that, what good was it? Once you're dead, you know not anything, according to Ezekiel. Let's go to Mark 4. Mark 4. And get into this subject. Here. He was talking to the twelve, verse 10, Mark 4, verse 10. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said to them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to them that are without, all these things are done in parables. He spoke in parables so that the masses of people who came to him could not understand. But it was given to the disciples to understand the mystery of God. Therefore, today, you and I should understand the mystery of God. Now, we know, don't we, from reading Herbert Armstrong's Mystery of the Ages, what man's purpose on this earth is. That we are actually to become God. We understand that part of the mystery. What is difficult for us to understand is what it would be like to be God. That's where we have problems. Not having a clear vision of what God is like and what we shall be leads us to all kinds of frustrations and difficulties because we do not have clearly in mind what we are to become. We may understand the mystery that we're to become God, but what does that mean to us? How can our children relate to that? How can we, indeed, in some respects, relate to that? Let's move on. Colossians 1. I'm laying a little bit of background here. Colossians 1. Let's begin... In verse 14, speaking of Jesus Christ, breaking into the context here, Jesus Christ, or his dear son in the previous verse, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. There's one that we have trouble believing right there. Just simply the forgiveness of sin. We tend to carry guilt along with us. Not understanding God. We don't understand how someone could forgive sin. That's one of the incredible things about God, that he can remove our sin from us. We no longer carry any guilt, but we as human beings have this wonderful memory of the past. And so often we carry around past sins with us, rather than realizing and believing, having faith as the sermon had said, that those actually are forgiven. They're gone. They're erased. I've covered that ground before, but a lot of people have difficulty with it. And I think at times we all have difficulty with it. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, Jesus Christ being the firstborn And he is the very image of God. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, there are things around us that we don't know about that are there. There are visible things and there are invisible things. Remember the case where someone was worried about whether they had protection or not? And suddenly they were given eyes to see what was around. And there were multitudes of chariots and angels all around. That's quite a relief to know that. When you're fearing these mere people out here. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. There are principalities and powers that we cannot see. All things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Created everything. But there's a vast gulf between us and God. A gulf that we have trouble understanding. Let's go to First Corinthians 2. First Corinthians 2. That's part of the mystery, not being able to understand the difference between human and God. It's hard for us to understand spiritual things. First Corinthians two verse seven. But we seek the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's only very few people are given to know the mystery of God. And Paul said that they were teaching the mystery of God, the apostles. The mystery of God is contained in this book, the Bible. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 13 understand part of our problem here. <clears throat> He's talking about love in this chapter and how it is the most important thing. And you can have a lot of things, but if you don't have love, you don't have anything. Verse 8, let's break in there. Love never fails, but whether there be prophecies, they shall be fulfilled. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Then he makes some very important statements here. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. We don't fully comprehend, Paul is saying. He did not fully comprehend what we are about. And we can only prophesy in part, because prophecy is drawing a picture of the future from Scripture. And the Scripture is written in such a way that it's hard to put it all together and get the exact order of everything that is about to happen. So we can only prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, when Jesus Christ comes back, then that which is in part shall be done away then we will completely and totally understand. See how that fits with Revelation 10.7? When that trumpet shall sound, the mystery of God will be finished. Now, we understand the mystery of God and the purpose of man in part. But we simply as human beings cannot fully comprehend what it would be like to be spirit, to be God. We are so bound by our five senses, and sometimes they talk about a sixth sense, or extrasensory perception, and it's easy to get into trouble with that, because it's something beyond our normal experience, and it can lead to problems with demons, because some of those invisible things that are around us are evil. We cannot see them, but they're there. Then he explains further, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I began to understand better, he said. Some wag has said that this proved Paul was married. He put away childish things. He had children and had to put the toys away. Of course, that was someone who didn't understand child-rearing, that you can actually cause kids to put their own toys away. Wow. Let's not get into that. Verse 12, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We are going to come face to face with God the Father and Jesus Christ. Are you ready for that one? Kind of makes chills go up my spine to even consider it because there is such great power and heat and light. So that if we looked into their face now, it would blind us and we would die. Its face shines as the sun in its full glory. So, right now, Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, Now I know, I understand, I perceive in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. How was he known? God knew his every thought, he knew his every motive, he knew every nuance of every belief that Paul had, every prayer he heard immediately went to God. Can you imagine a God who is capable of listening to three prayers at once and not getting them confused? Thirty prayers at once? Three hundred prayers at once? Three thousand? A hundred thousand prayers going up to God at once and he knows exactly the attitude behind every one of them, never gets any mixed up, and can answer every one of them without fail, or without ever slipping and getting confused at all about any of those prayers. I cannot listen to two conversations at once, and not get confused. Sometimes I can't listen to one without getting confused. I have trouble understanding that kind of multitasking. Maybe you women can get it, I don't know. A little bit. But not to the degree I'm talking about here. There are prayers going up all over this earth. Some of them God rejects because he hears not sinners. Those people who are living a life of sin. But those of us who have been called according to his purpose, sanctified and set apart for salvation... I mean, just this little group right here that I'm looking at, not even counting all of you out on the telephone. If you were all to get up at, say, 7 o'clock in the morning and start praying, I'm sure glad God gets to listen to you, not me. Because you'd confuse me. He gets it all. So he says, so that we will know even as we are known. We will know God then like he knows us, is what Paul is saying. We will have the same kind of mind that is able to ingest all that information and make sense of every bit of it. Some of you have trouble making sense out of one teenager. And that one teenager probably has trouble making sense out of that one teenager. But I don't mean to pick on them. We as adults have trouble making sense of ourselves. We do not even know our own motives so frequently. We think we're being motivated by this. But God knows we're being motivated by this. And when we pray this prayer with this motivation, sometimes he gives us something else to make us understand what our true motivation really is. Because the heart is so deceitful and desperately wicked that we deceive and fool ourselves. And sometimes we're not deceived, we just do what we want to do. That's another subject. But we look through a glass darkly. Now let's go to 2 Corinthians 3. Let's start in verse 13. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 13. Well, verse 12. Seeing then that we have such hope, he's been speaking about the hope of a Christian, we use great plainness of speech, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. Even Israel was blinded, not just the Gentiles. For until this day remains the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. That doesn't mean the Old Testament is done away. It means the veil of understanding is gone, of misunderstanding. But even to this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. See, they looked to Moses. They didn't look to Christ. They crucified Christ, saying, Moses is our father. So they didn't understand the connection between the Old Testament and Melchizedek, who was Christ back then, just not yet born as a human. Nevertheless, verse 16, when it... It shall turn to the Lord, or when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, the eternal is that spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When we have the spirit of God, it should give us liberty beyond what anyone else on earth has. That doesn't mean liberty to break God's law and sin. It means liberty from the shackles of deception that Satan has put upon this world. Liberty to live the right way, which brings right results. But notice verse 18. But we all, Paul and the Corinthians and to whomever this letter reaches, we all with open face beholding as in a glass, a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image From glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Eternal. We may look into a glass darkly and have trouble understanding what it would like to actually become God. But there's going to come a time when we are changed into that same image. Now the Catholics teach a beatific vision, and the more penance your relatives pay into the coffers of the Catholic Church, the clearer the vision of God becomes. It's like you have terrible astigmatism, and each time they plug some more quarters into the offering basket, you see God a little clearer. And hopefully, if they keep paying long enough over enough generations, you can see God very clearly. But here, Paul says, we're going to be changed into the same image. We're going to be just like God. Keep that thought in mind. We are going to become just like God. In fact, we will be God. The Father and the Son, of course, always having preeminence. He being the Father and the Son being the first of the first fruits but we would become the bride let's go to first Corinthians 15 these verses i wanted to play for you but instead i will read them to you let's start Well, we could read the whole chapter, but I don't want to take the time to do it. Um, Where do I want to start? Let's break in about verse 45. And so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul, a mayfash, a human being. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit, speaking of Christ. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. So humanness or Adam, we, come first, and then the Spirit comes later. The first man is of the earth, earthy. We are earthbound creatures. We can barely jump off the ground. And they say white men can't jump at all. We think physically. We are bound to this earth. We are dependent upon this earth. Without this earth, we cannot long live they send people up into space a little way, but they are still bound to the earth. They had to take things there from the earth to eat. They have to take air from the earth to even breathe while they're there. They would die immediately. So even though they might be up in the air a few miles, they are still earth-bound. They even begin to lose, lose bone if they're up there very long with the weightlessness, and they will die, because we we made to live on the earth. We are human. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. So there is a great gulf between that which is earthbound and that which can live somewhere else in the heavens. Now let's begin to think about this in terms of ourselves. I am of the earth, earthy. There are times I would like to fly away like a bird and go see what's on the other side of the mountain. But being of the earth and earthy, I have to climb it one step at a time. And when you're old and fat, that's hard to do. When you're young and in good shape, that's harder to do. To climb a mountain, it's steep. The air gets thinner as you go up, and your muscles begin to groan and hurt, because you're earth-bound. Wouldn't it be like, I've I've stood halfway up a mountain, gasping and panting, and so tired I could hardly move, and watched a bird take off from the branch next to me, and just flip right over the mountain. I've watched goats and bears and deer just run right up it like it didn't even exist, almost. Run over to the other side. And here I'm standing there. Odd that they can move those legs so fast and almost straight up. I can't do that. Now, if I were God, though, I could just take off. Now, would you rather be physical or spirit? If I wanted to go out and see the moon... I'm bound. You know, Mars was as close about a month ago as it's ever been since man has been here to the earth. And they said, this is your very best chance to really look at Mars. So I went out there, and I looked up, and there's Mars, and it sort of twinkled. And it looked like Mars always looked to me, just a little bit bigger, but it looked about the same. So I went in, I got the binoculars, I go out, look at Mars. Well, it looks all the same, only about nine times bigger. Didn't change much. Now, if I were not bound to the earth, if I was spirit, I could just go to Mars. Just like that. That'd be a kick, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be fun just to take off and go to Mars? And then you could come back, and they call you the man from Mars. And if a lot of people on this earth heard this sermon today, they think that's where I came from. Because these are concepts that the world does not understand. Now, the Sabbath is a sign between God and his people. And yet I submit to you that the understanding that man is to become God is almost as much a sign and certainly a lot stranger sounding to the world as a whole than the Sabbath is. It is the mystery of the ages. Let's go on and see if I'm saying this right. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. Now, even the Protestants think you're going to go to heaven. But that's the reward of the saved. So if you're not, you can't go to heaven unless you're heavenly, can you? Now, I believe we'll go into the heavens to the throne of God for about a year.
1: But we'll come back
0: to the earth. And I don't want to get into that. I've explained it before and showed you the scriptures on it. But we cannot be of the earth anymore if that occurs, can we? We can't be earthbound. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We're going to be in the kingdom of God. We're going to have to get rid of this flesh at some point. Can't be there. Neither does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all be dead, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised up incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We'll no longer be of the earth, and earth will be heavenly. That ties beautifully with Revelation 10.7. It says that the last trump, the mystery, is solved. Now, we may understand part of it now, but we can only understand in part. We can't really fully get it. I want us today, if nothing else, to get it a little better. To understand a little better, because without vision, the people perish. But with vision of the future, with understanding, it encourages them and strengthens them and inspires them to move forward. To fulfill the purpose for which we've been put on this earth. So if nothing else, let's understand a little better today. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, now here is what we should get from this passage. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be you steadfast unmovable, always abounding in the work of the eternal. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We are not going through this just because it's fun. We are going through this to become incorruptible. Let's understand We today are corruptible. We grow from children to adulthood. And from the time we are born, we have entered the process of dying. And some of you who are young already have signs of death. You have growths on your bodies and on your faces, you have warts, you have memories that are already weak. And once we reach adulthood, we just begin a decline, don't we? And every year you live, you get a little less strong, a little nearer death. Hair falls out, everything begins to sag and try to through gravity reach the earth. Every decade you live, you get a little closer to the ground. I mean, we even get shorter. Our bones shrink. We begin to stoop over. And you see people are walking along, they're all stooped over because they're trying to fall in the grave. They're trying to resist, but it's inexorable. They just sort of start leaning. And you want to lean so far and that's it. We're so physical. Wouldn't it be neat to always feel good? To always have all kinds of energy? To never feel tired? Now people, why is it That we are so bound to this physical that we don't want to turn loose of it at all. And even when we are stooped so often, and we are nearing that time when our life physically will end, we fight it and we resist it. Because we can't fully comprehend that in the next instant of our consciousness, we will always feel good. We will have boundless energy. We can go to the moon and back before breakfast and have no problem. Some of us can barely get to the bathroom and back before breakfast. (laughs) But we want to cling to this life, don't we? Well, God made the desire to live very strong in us, and that's not a wrong thing. But at the same time, that kind of life is going to be so much better than this. We're simply not bound to the earth. You can go around the earth if you want and look at it as you fly along, or if you desire, you can go through the earth. Shorter trip. Always wondered what's in the earth, and the tell us that it's a molten mass in there. And when you look at Yellowstone bubbling and Kylia and different places, you know that there's some heat down there. But it wouldn't bother you. The stove's burning and you want to lean on it, would be all right. Wouldn't it be neat? You didn't get hurt? Didn't get burned? Incorruptible. That means cannot be corrupted. Cannot be hurt. Truck runs over you, so what? I mean you could just be standing there and the truck could go past and you'd still be standing there. Can we comprehend what it is like to be incorruptible? No, we really can't. I can talk about it, but we can't truly comprehend it because we've never experienced anything truly but hurt and physical flesh and bone, which can break very easily. Cannot die. After that last trump, you cannot die. Now, people live all around this earth today in fear of death, don't they? Don't want to die. And our scientists are working madly To keep us alive as long as they can. And now we have organ factories where they're taking people's organs out or taking the DNA from them and constructing new organs. So when your heart or your liver or your spleen or your gallbladder goes bad, they can just take one out of the organ farm and plug it in you. And they hope to keep you alive forever. Your brain goes bad, they just grow a new one from your DNA and poke a new brain in you. That's what they have in mind. They would love to make us immortal. That is, unless you're an unwanted baby, then they can kill you. It's not a problem. That's the inconsistency of Satan's kingdom. It's divided against itself. On the one hand, they want you to live forever. On the other hand, if you're unwanted, toss you in the dumpster. Luke 18. Luke 18. And here I want down about verse 30. He's talking, well, Peter's uh, speaking here, they're talking about a rich man entering the kingdom of God. Verse 28. Then Peter said, Lo, well, we have left all and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no man that has left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come, life everlasting. Life that never ends. We are tied to the earth, earthy, and we're tied to the idea of death, and we know that someday we will die. Now, when we're between ages 1 and 20, we think we're incorruptible. We think we cannot die. We think we'll live forever. But in every older person, the inner man is a young person wondering what happened. (laughs) In our minds, we're ageless, aren't we? And then we look in the mirror and say, oh no, what's going on? (laughs) But he says life everlasting cannot die. Now, would you rather be human or spirit? As a human, I'm going to die. As a spirit, I would never die. The price is pretty high. And we heard the sermon at this morning about, is the reward worth the price we must now pay? And he says, if we're willing to give up, father, mother, brother, parents, wife, children, for the kingdom of God's sake, whatever it takes, we'll have those things more in this present time. Now, in some respects, I'm estranged from most of my family. Most of them, well, there were a lot of them in the church at one time, but some of them have died and some of them have left and become Methodists or Baptists or something. Am I dying? or No, it's just a bug in my hair. I thought something had oozed out. I live a different life, a different way than my relatives, most of them. And even in the church now, because of our Laodiceanism, I have members of my extended family in all different branches of the church. Don't see eye to eye, can only talk about things of the past or things we did as kids or, you know, what Aunt Levy and Uncle Harry said or something. But as far as being on the same page, we're not anymore. But you know what? I have an extended family within the Church of God now that I'm far closer to than any of my human, I mean, blood relatives. You're still human, too. didn't mean to exclude you. Blood human relatives. Because of not doing things right always, I'm estranged from some of my own children. I am closer to you. My dad's dead, and I'm not very close to him anymore. If I do call him, he doesn't answer. No, that's not, I don't mean in a necromancy. I mean, if I dial the number where he used to live, he wouldn't answer. My sister might, or my mother. But God has given me a spiritual family here that I feel very, very close to. My fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and so on. And I'm offered life everlasting. First Timothy one. First Timothy one. And here I want verse sixteen. 1 Timothy 1.16 Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. We believe in him, on him in the right way. We have life everlasting. That is beyond my comprehension. I cannot understand life eternal. Never, never, ever die. Because I'm getting close enough to it in this life that it is a reality now. Now unto the King Eternal. Now listen to this. To the King Eternal, immortal, not mortal, above mortality, way beyond mortality. You've heard of mortal wounds. That means you die. God is above that. Cannot die. Invisible. God can be right here in this room. We can't see him. We pray for Jesus Christ to be with us when we open a service. He could be right here. He could be standing there. He could be standing over here. He could be looking at you from anywhere or from his throne in heaven, for that matter, and be here in spirit. Because he's invisible the only wise God. Sometimes we need wisdom, don't we? If we become God, we're going to have wisdom in abundance. Do you ever wrestle with a decision and have difficulty deciding what's the best thing for you to do? You'll even talk to people say, man, I don't know what to do. This and this and this and this is happening, this and this and this is happening, and You'll talk to somebody else and say, what should I do? And you'll say, well, I don't know. Because we don't have the wisdom of God. We don't have the wisdom that God gave Solomon. When the two women argued over the baby, he says, bring me a sword. What are you going to do with the sword, Solomon? Well, I'm going to cut this baby in half and give it half to you and half to you. Makes sense. And then the real mother Became apparent just like that. What incredible wisdom. Who would have thought that if you had two people arguing over whose baby it was, it could be solved so very, very simply? Just pull out a sword and say, well, let's just divide it. Which half do you want? Incredible wisdom. As human beings, there aren't very many wise men called. We have trouble making sometimes the simplest of decisions and following through with them. But as God, we have all the wisdom of the universe in our heads so that we always will make right decisions. Never blow it. Never make a wrong decision. How many of you are in that category today? Never made a bad decision. All right, let's show in 1 John 3 that this approach is correct. 1 John 3. When did I turn to the Gospel of John? That won't work. 1 John 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. How much love, how wide, how big is God's love? What, what kind of love could this be? That's what John is saying. That God has given us. That we should be called the sons of God. Now, my sons are Daryl's sons. They look a little like me. One's shorter and one's taller. That's just normal, isn't it? To have sons that look somewhat like us. (coughs) They have two arms, two legs, a head. Kind begets kind. My sons are like me. My daughters are fairly similar Different shape, but still two arms, two hands, two legs. They're of the same kind. Male and female, but the same kind. So we are of the God kind. And we shall be God. When we are baptized and receive the laying on of hands and have God's Spirit begin to grow in us, we are then begotten of God. We are God's seed. A male and female human being, or a married couple, come together and produce a child by combining their seed. And God is doing the exact same thing. It's just that we are now fetuses. We are not yet born. Now, if a fetus is born to a human mother at age three months, it would be yuck. Right? Just sort of a little mass of tissue. Doesn't even look too human at that point. If it's born at four months, it looks a little more human. If it's born at five months, it might live with help. Six, seven, eight months, it begins to take on more and more and more of the look of a human being. So that at age nine months, that fetus can come into the world, and you can count the fingers and the toes and check the plumbing, and you know exactly what you've got. And it looks human. It is, at that point, born as a human being in the image of the father and the mother. That is exactly the process God is working on with you and me. When we're first begotten, we don't look much like God. We still look a whole lot like this world. But over a period of time, we're to begin to change in vitro. Not in vitro. We're not in the. I'm in, in. What's the word I'm looking for? In the womb, the church is the womb. The church is the mother, and we begin to grow and grow, and hopefully over time we begin to look more and more like God. So that when the last trump sounds, we can be born into the kingdom of God, and when we're born, God can look at us and say, "I have in my hands God." Fully God, because we've gone through that period of growth as a fetus and become God. We should be called the sons of God, therefore the world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God? We're already there as a fetus. When the mother is pregnant, you can go feel her tummy, and you can feel the baby kicking. And you can say, that's my baby. Well, you haven't seen it yet. And up until recently, you didn't know whether it was boy or girl, but you could tell by that thumping and bumping around in there that that was your baby. God looks at us that way now. He says, well, you know, but I can't hold it yet. You know, you can pick mama up and hold it that way, I guess, if you want to. Or if you can. But there comes a point when it becomes your baby fully. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We will see face to face and eyeball to eyeball, because we will be God. We will no longer be of the earth, earthy, but will be of the heaven. We will be spirit at that time. Now, let's go to Revelation 1 and understand a little bit about how you are going to look. Now, imagine for a moment from your pers- present perspective as a human being, at whatever age you might be, how you will look in 20, 30, or 40 years. Now, I can picture myself 20, 30, 40 years from now as being all dead over and trying to fall in a grave. I can picture myself gray-headed, bald-headed, I can picture myself barely able to get up out of a bed or a chair because I know what happens to human beings. I see them aging before my very eyes. I see some of you trying to hold yourself out of the grave. And some of you who are just standing tall and you think everything's going to be fine with you from now on. You haven't run into age 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 yet or 70, or 80. So you don't understand, perhaps, the need to be different. But if we're going to be like him, let's go to verse 13. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like to the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the foot, you'll be wearing clothes down to the foot. Hmm. Not up to the butt, if I may be so bold. And gird about the paths with a golden girdle. Be wearing gold. That'd be nice. Now, it doesn't mean a girdle like those that try to hold a woman in that they used to wear. It means clothing girded about with gold. Not just some little gold earrings, but golden clothes. His head and his hair, he's not bald, God isn't bald, were white like wool. Beautiful white hair. Now, that doesn't mean he's stooped and wrinkled and aged, because he's not. His hair is white like wool, but he looks young and vibrant. Not like somebody I see sitting back here with a bald head uh, with a little bit of hair around the ears. That's not the way God looks. He's more like Alan Johnson, sort of prematurely gray. Still looks young, but gray. See, that's more the way God is. White as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. You look at human beings today, and you know, sometimes you see sort of dead eyes, sometimes you see a sparkle, sometimes you see mud. Uh, we have all different kinds of eyes. But then, as God, our eyes will just sparkle and twinkle like fire. Everyone will be alive and alert and bright. Here is a Big old beagle laying on a porch, and he sort of looks up with these brown eyes, and they don't move any more than his body does. Beagles just aren't made to move much. Bagels, maybe they are, laying there. Eyes like a flame of fire. And his feet like fine brass. Would everyone pull your shoes off for me, please? Boy, would we have something. It's like on night, uh, the uh, the Passover night. Everybody has to take their shoes off. you got to wash your feet. You know what? Virtually everyone washes their feet before they ever get here. Most of them trim their toenails. They file the warts off. Stand where you can't see their bunions. It would be nice to have a a foot just molded like fine brass. Beautiful. No wrinkles. No smell. As if they burned in a furnace. Anybody got feet like that that just shine like they were? Red hot? And his voice is the sound of many waters. One of the most soothing things on earth is to lie on your bed beside a creek or a river and listen to the waters rippling over the rocks. It's different than listening to a faucet drip in the night. (laughs) There's a difference between a drip, drip, drip in the the toilet tank and rippling waters of a river or a creek. That is so soothing, I can just sleep. Now it could be mighty waters as well. Powerful voice. Let's see that back in. Hold your finger here. Go back to, uh, where do I want? Job 40, I think. Job 40. Now what verse do I want? I wrote it down here somewhere if I can find it. I don't even know where I am in my notes. I probably probably read it and find it faster than find it on here. Where is that? Nine? Yeah. Have you an arm like God? Or can you thunder with a voice like Him? Some of us have these little high-speaky voices. But God says His voice is like a rumble of thunder. The power of thunder! Wake up! You who might be sleeping on your potluck. <laughs> Told you I'd yell. It's been longer than ten minutes, though. So. It can sound like rippling waters, or it can sound like the thunder of the highest waterfall you've ever seen, like standing under the cliff and watching Niagara Falls, if you've been there. Just a stupendous, thunderous roar. Or Victoria Falls in Africa, places like that. Incredible power of water. He says, that's the kind of voice you'll have. But that's not the only voice you might have. God is a God with a wide range of emotion and personality. Notice in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. A little different view of how God sometimes is. Here Elijah had run from Jezebel, was hiding up out in the mountains, and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights because he was scared of Jezebel. Um, and he thought he was the only one left. He, everybody else was dead that believed in God, and Jezebel was after his hide, and he was all that was left. Really feeling sorry for himself out there. Self-pity up to here. Verse 10, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, slain your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Woe is me. And he said, Go forth and stand upon the mount before the Eternal, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains. I was driving back from California not too long ago, going up over the pass near to Hatchapi, there in Southern California, and it was a winding road down the canyon, pretty steep canyon, pretty narrow. And all of a sudden, I thought the end of the world had come. Because one of those fighter pilot jockeys had decided that it would be really, really fun in going back into Edwards Air Force Base there. I think it was Edwards, whatever one it was. He thought it would be real fun to come in right down over the highway, just barely above the highway. And you didn't hear anything, and all of a sudden you just heard a... As the sound barrier broke, and I nearly went off the road. Man, you should have heard the truckers on those CVs. Very descriptive language about that pilot and his airplane and the sound and everything else. That's probably detail I could spare you, but they really went on about it. And angry? oh! But it scared me so much, I just sort of went, and I was pulling a trailer, and... It it was such a sudden fright. If you were God, you could go by like that as the sound of a mighty wind, rending the mountains. That's the way that fighter plane sounded to me. I can try to make a little noise as a human being, and I can't get very far. That pilot thought it was neat to shake people up. And when God decides to shake this world up, He has all power to do it. He can make the mountains rock. He can make the oceans go where they don't belong. He can make the earth rock and reel like a drunk trying to get home. He can make the whole universe act as if it's had 43 shots of Jim Beam. Just rock and roll. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. I can barely throw a rock, much less wind rocks on mountains into little pieces. God can do that. And someday you could do that because you'll be God. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. So, Elijah gets scared half to death here. I mean, he's already got Jezebel on his tail, and he thinks he's the only one left. And all of a sudden, the mountain around him starts shaking, and the rock's breaking from boulders into little pieces. And then the earth quakes and shakes back and forth. And by then, he's really, really scared. If you've been through a powerful earthquake, and I've been through quite a few... It gives you a very uneasy and queasy feeling when the whole house begins to rock and roll. And the moose head up on the wall starts going like this. And the logs start going like that. And the whole earth heaves around you. And you hear a sound that sounds like a train coming through. Because the earth is moving up and down as it comes in waves, like waves of the ocean toward you. And it makes a horrendous sound at times. That's what Elijah went through. And it says, God wasn't in all that. Now, God caused it. But that wasn't what he wanted Elijah to hear. He shook him up royally. Don't you like to shake people up once in a while? Come on now. Don't you, isn't it fun to shake people up a little bit? Don't we tease each other, kid each other, try to shake somebody up, try to get a rise out of them? God sure did it with Elijah. And after the earthquake, a fire. So you have a wind that breaks the boulders, an earthquake that shakes you half to death, and then fire. And you think you're about to be burned because you're human and you're on this earth and earthy and you haven't gotten to the point that fire doesn't hurt you yet. So this guy, by now, was fully shaken awake. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. God chose to speak to Elijah very quietly, very easily, very gently. But boy, did he get his attention first. Now sometimes that's all God wants to do is get our attention, and then we'll listen to a still, small voice. So he can do it that way, too. God can be thunderous, and yet he can be very still and very small. He can be either way. A wide variety of how he can use the capabilities that he has. We are so very, very limited. Let's go back to Revelation 1. What time it getting to be? I'm not dead yet. Okay, we've, we stopped off at the end of verse 15. Verse 16, And he had in his right hand seven stars. Can you imagine holding seven stars in your hand? God can do that. I'd like to be God. I can barely even see stars anymore. But to hold them in your hand, and out of his mouth went a sharp, two-edged sword. We sometimes think we have a rapier wit, don't we? We sometimes think that we're really, really sharp. But we're all not the sharpest knife in the drawer, always are we? But he, his voice, his words are like a sharp, two-edged sword. Says so they can cut right to the marrow of the bone. Now, we can cut each other and tease each other and sometimes do it maliciously and meanly, for that matter, and that's not good. But in a loving way, it's fun to kid back and forth. But his words are so incisive and so precise, and he always has the right word. You ever notice how we sometimes can't find a word? We grope and grope and look for the right word, or wouldn't know what it meant if we did hear it. But God always has the exact, precise Right word. Christ could just shut the Pharisees and Sadducees up to the point they could say no more. Wouldn't it be nice, in this human realm, if you had the capacity to always answer in such a way that no one ever had a comeback? You'd probably get hard to live with. But God always has the exact right choice, the right angle, the right direction to come from. Never says anything offensive in a wrong way. Trouble saying the wrong thing. I'd like to see that changed. It'd be nice to get in trouble for saying the right thing. Well, I get in trouble for that sometimes too. If I preach from the Word of God. Because people don't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear Christ either. So it shut them up. And his countenance was as the sun shines in his strength. Have you ever seen the sun shine in strength? I think we do here in Arizona at times, or here in Utah. That sun can really be bright about one o'clock in the afternoon, can't it? There is the kind of face we will have. Like the sun shining in its full glory. Not washed out, not veins showing around our nose, uh, not sagging and bagging, but young and vital and strong and powerful and shining. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You've heard of drop dead beautiful? <laughs> God is so powerful, so strong, so beautiful, so righteous, that now if a human being were to see God, he would drop as dead. And this was just in a vision. This wasn't real. But even in the vision, it was so strong that he just dropped on his face. People don't usually drop on their face when they see you, do they? Sometimes they don't even give you the time of day. But then the whole world would take note. Everybody in America today wants their 15 minutes of fame. God is going to give us fame that lasts forever and ever. A lot of people just die to get on the 6 o'clock news or blow themselves up to get on the news. A lot of people do that this day and age. We will be famous throughout the world and throughout the universe if we're part of that 144,000 who become the bride of Christ. The whole world will fall at our feet when we appear. Can you imagine that? That's, That's beyond my comprehension. Now I show up and somebody says, Who's the little short fat guy? You know? Doesn't impress them at all. I meet people for the first time and say, I thought you'd be taller. Sure, loud mouth. <laughs> Hard to comprehend, isn't it? The difference between physical and spirit. I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. Wouldn't it be neat someday when all the people on the earth in the millennium look to the New Jerusalem where we'll be living? And they see you. It says there in Isaiah thirty twenty one, we'll see our teachers. They see you, and they just freeze. They were about to sin, and you appear on the scene. And they're about ready to fall over in fright and respect and awe. Now, I don't mean this in a pain way. But you would have their attention so much that they would listen to you. They wouldn't diss you, as is common to say today. They'd be scared half to death if they saw you. I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive for evermore, and have the keys the grave and death. Now what does he promise us? Let's go quickly through Revelation 2 and 3. He speaks to the church at Ephesus. Verse 7, he that has an ear, chapter 2, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is not just to one. A lot of people have thought that each one of these rewards just went to each one of these seven churches. But he's speaking to all the churches here when he gives what he will do for Ephesus. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. The paradise of God is his throne, is the new Jerusalem, that heavenly city which will come down which I think I conclusively proved to be at the beginning of the millennium in that series on how exclusive is the church. We'll be given the tree of life. That was offered to Adam and Eve, but or would have been. But they took of the tree of good and evil first. So God withheld that tree of life, threw them out of the garden where they couldn't get at it, put angels there with big swords. But it'll be offered to those who overcome out of all the churches. Uh, Down in the next one, verse 10, end of the verse. Be you faithful to death, and I will give you a crown of life. Be willing to die physically if it comes to that, and he will give you a crown of life because you're willing to sacrifice this earthy temporal body for something in the future. Not much of a price to pay, is it? This physical life, For one that lasts forever? That's a no-brainer. But we have trouble giving up the physical for the spiritual, don't we? He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church ends. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. No fear ever again of dying. That's something in the past. Uh, To the next one he says down in verse 17. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church as to him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. I don't even know what that is. Now, they had manna out in the wilderness, in the desert, and they called it, what's it, and it's described as angel food, food that angels would eat. Now, they call them angel food cakes today. And they're not angelic, and they're not food, and they're sort of spongy and not much like cake, in my opinion. That's not the hidden manna. Whatever he is going to give us is food that is... Where's the word I'm groping for here? I told you we do this. It's the kind of food that would be given to angels... You think you're a good cook, you think you're a chef, you go to certain restaurants because they are a five-star, most of us don't, we don't have the money or the accessibility to it, but they make some food that tastes pretty good on this earth. God has a hidden manna for us, and we'll give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows, saving he that receives it. It's going to be a secret thing at first. Every one of those who is in the first resurrection, who at that last trump is part of the mystery of God being revealed, is going to be given a new name. It won't be that name you've got now that you got from your great-granddaddy that you're ashamed of and don't want people to hear it. This will be a new name. And it'll be a beautiful name. Because it will be given to one of those who are part of the Bride of Christ. And only you will know what that name is. You've seen people sitting around a Chinese restaurant? What'd your fortune cookie say? Everybody would like to know what your new name is. You're the only one who knows. wonder how long that will be. What period of time until we share our names with each other. What's your name going to mean? Brilliance? Beauty? Love? There'll be no horses behind. We'll all be part of the bride of Christ. All the names will be wonderful names. Let's see, let's go on down. Uh, Verse 26, He that overcomes and keeps my works to the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. As the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my Father. Now, we've read the prophecies back there in Isaiah and various places where it says Christ will rule with a rod of iron. He will break them. He says he'll give us the same power. We will have the same power, virtually, that Jesus Christ has. We'll be like him. He will be in charge, no doubt. I'm not trying to say anything different than that. But he will give us that same kind of power. (coughs) We'll be kings and priests, right? Revelation 5.10. Ruling in the millennium. You want 15 minutes of fame? How about a thousand years of ruling all the nations? As spirit beings. I would hate to be a ruler of a nation today as a human being, wouldn't you? All the conspiracies and backbiting and murders and assassinations that have occurred on this earth. All the things that are said about a president or a king. How would you like to be a Clinton or a Bush and read all those things that are written about them? i would get real personal, wouldn't it? How would you like to be Hillary and all the things that have been written about her? I don't want to rule in this world. Not now. But if you were given power and you were absolutely perfect and you never did anything wrong or said anything wrong and had the very wisdom of all the universe, that'd be a different bag of tricks, wouldn't it? No one could gainsay anything you said. You'd never say the wrong thing. How many of us have foot and mouth disease or hoof and mouth? We all do. Then we would never say anything wrong. Never have to worry about it. We'd know. We'd always have the right words. I will give him the morning star. God will just give you a star. Wouldn't that be neat have your own star. You'd be a star. I'll show you that in a little bit. And you'll have one, too. Kind of like have your cake and eat it, too. All right, going on down to chapter 3, to Sardis, verse 5. He overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. He'll send you out with spotless, beautiful clothes. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Christ would be so pleased with you that he would go to God and say, This one is part of my bride. Bill or Jim or Joe or Jack or Mary or Elizabeth or whoever. This one It's part of my bride. You confess your name, your new name for that matter, before his father. Be so pleased with you. He can say, Dad, i just got to tell you about all these. This is my bride. We all like to feel included, don't we? Isn't it a horrible feeling when you feel unliked, unwanted, uncared for, insecure on this earth? I mean, even as children, we feel it. First, second grade, you're the ugly one. You're the last one chosen for the basketball team. That'd get to be a drag, wouldn't it? Always the last one chosen. Nobody wants me. Those are human feelings that we have. Terrible insecurities. That will all be gone. Because as a spirit, Jesus Christ would be so willing and so eager to go and say, these are the ones that I have chosen to be on my team to rule the world. Plug your name in there. Going on down to verse 12 of chapter 3. Philadelphia says, "...him that overcomes..." will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. Wherever he goes, we will go. We will always be with him. I can show you scriptures on that. And I will write upon him the name of my God. We'll be called God. We'll be named God. That's beyond our comprehension to believe, to understand, to grasp. I see that through a glass darkly. How could this human, fragile, frail, unimportant, weak human being be called God? Well, truth is, I couldn't. I have to be transformed. I have to be changed. I have to become spirit. Or that could never be said of me or of you. So put the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. Then to Laodicea, even. We're in the dregs of spew here in the church today. Verse 21, To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. And even as I also overcame and have sat down with my Father in His throne. We're going to sit down with Christ in His throne and rule the world. We all look to Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Redeemer. and says we're going to sit right there with Him in His throne. Psalm 24. I'm out of time, aren't I? Yeah. Almost out of time. Well, let's let's go back here. Psalm 24. I'm trying to multitask. I'm trying to think where I'm going and how much time there is and what I'm about to say. And I can't get there. Psalm 24, verse 8. Well, let's go verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be you lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? Now, we're going to be kings of glory too. The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates, even lift them up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. We're going to be His wife, going to be His bride, going to be ruling with Him in His throne, kings and priests, in the thousand-year millennium. That is what is laid before us. That is the mystery of the ages. That we're to become God, as God is God. We shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That sounds like blasphemy to most of the world, but it's the word of God. There is a rule in the book of Genesis that says, kind begets kind. That is a rule of the universe that God has made. Snakes beget snakes. Lambs or rams, sheep beget sheep. Pine trees beget pine trees. You don't plant corn and get wheat, as Herbert Armstrong said over and over. Kind begets kind. Let's go to Ephesians 5 for a moment and follow that thought up. Ephesians 5. He's talking about marriage in this chapter, beginning with verse 21 and talks about the husband's and wife's position in a marriage and how it ought to be. He says in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. We're to treat our wives as Christ taught, treated the church. He was willing to die for it. We should be willing to die for our wives. That's the kind of love and feeling and emotion we should have for them. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. We should set our wives aside as something special. Sanctify, that's what it means. Set aside for some special use. And cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. And so their wives are clean and pure, and we treat them with great respect. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Now, fellows, our wives are going to get old and have spots and wrinkles, it's inevitable. But when we are changed to spirit, there will be no spot and no wrinkle. And this is speaking of conduct as well here. No spots and no wrinkles. No faults, no problems. No difficulties. Wouldn't you like to have a wife that was, out with, was without wrinkle or spot? No problems, no difficulties. Perfect in every way. Yeah, you would, but she wouldn't want you. Wives, wouldn't it be nice to have a husband who didn't mistreat and abuse you emotionally and physically, but treated you like a queen? Wouldn't it be nice? But we all come short of that. But that's the way Christ is working to present the church to himself as a bride and to the Father, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it and takes good care of it. He should do his wife the same way, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now, I don't have an alien's leg over here, nor do I have someone else's arm. These are mine. And he says that we will have the same bones, the same body as him. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So he says the human marriage should depict. And be a type of the marriage of Christ and the church. Now, you husbands and wives are both human, aren't you? But you are the same kind. And in marriage, you should become one flesh, one entity, one unit together, molded together perfectly. We all fall far short of that, but that is the goal, because he says that is exactly how it is with Christ and the church, the first fruits. Now, is he going to be married to something inferior? No, he's not. He's going to be married to someone just like he is. That's why this is such a great mystery. It's hard for us to comprehend that we're not going to be human anymore, but we're going to be just like Christ. Spirit, not earth, not earthy, but spirit of the heavenly. I think we should stop there. Because I'm running out of time, just not running out of the subject. But we, this is something I think that we need to continue, and I'll see when will be the best time to do that, but it will be very soon. Uh, and they tie it with atonement, because we are just talking here about how we are to become at one with Christ, that our marriages should depict Christ and the church. And atonement means becoming at one with God. So maybe this is a good time to break this off and continue this line of thinking then. So let's do just that.